Uh, I hope the tables in the middle are okay, uh, that it's not a stumbling block to anybody this morning. Uh, education and or various people are saying, hey, let's try in different seating arrangements. And I said, fine. Um, so here we are. So um, a different look uh, that we have this morning. Um, let's see, what did we end with the last time we gathered? Uh, the mystery religions and that discussion uh, that Christianity was is basically, um, not copywriting, but what's it called? Plagiarizing. Plagiarizing older stories. And the one that's brought up the most often, they say, is, uh, which one do you remember the name? Mithras, right? Who... Uh, by the, you know, one of the things uh, that they said that why Mithras is so popular because one of the ways or one of the ways people try to translate the story of Mithras is to say that he was born from a virgin. But they said the, the author who cited a book of the guy who studied this, this religion says, no, actually it says born from a stone. Mithras was born from a stone. So a couple of details and things like that. Don't let people... Don't let people state things without you challenging them. It's okay to do that. Does anybody need a book or want a book? Uh, Mr. Trantham, Andrew, uh, thank you, sir, gets one before anybody else because he's a visitor. Uh, and he's our organist. And how does, how did, yeah, and his coffee's probably cold now. And what, are the, what is that saying about the organist? If the organist ain't happy, ain't no one happy, right? Is that true? <laughs> He's going to, he, he might be playing real fast for us, you know, but I'll show you people, you know, or real slow. But no, thank you, Andrew, for being here. We, we appreciate everything. Uh, anybody else need a book? Uh, uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. Amen. Okay, so um, the next chapter, page 58, is where we are at. Uh, as we welcome in the high school class as well. Um, Y'all mosey on in and find your spot. Okay. Um, the deity of Christ was an early church innovation, page 58. This is one accusation that is made against the church. Um, if you can't prove, right, that Jesus was a fictional character, um, we have the historical documents that say there was a Jesus of Nazareth. Most people believe he existed um, as, a, as a man who walked the earth. The next thing that you go to is you try to say that's all he was, that Jesus was just a man. Um, so we're, gonna, we're going to look at that. For different reasons, it is often asserted that Jesus was not God or did not, <clears throat> did not claim to be God. Christians have believed that Jesus was God based on Jesus' own words from the time of his life on earth. Early Christian confessions of the divinity of Jesus include second-century writings from Ignatius and Polycarp and the Council of Nicaea in 325. Jesus, as God incarnate, has power to save. Okay. Um, Adam, I, I wished y'all would have considered those two names for the two boys, Ignatius and Polycarp. You think Heather would be on board with that? <laughs> oh. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, page 58. Who do you say that I am? Matthew 16. This was the all-important question Jesus asked his apostles as they traveled through the region of Caesarea Philippi. 
it remains among the most important of all queries one may make today. Peter's immediate response to Jesus informs the pattern for the confession of all Christians around the world. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Since this time, the acknowledgement of Jesus as the Son of God has been fundamental to the apostolic message and the Christian understanding of Jesus. Okay, uh, just seeing this word here um, reminded me that I wanted to touch a little bit on that term apostolic. Does anybody know what apostle means? That's a Greek word. Uh, if somebody asked you, what's the difference between the apostles or disciples? What's Okay, yeah, the apostles were eyewitnesses. The word apostle itself means sent. So we, we talk about the apostles as the eyewitnesses of Jesus who also were sent directly and personally by Jesus. That's why we would say the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and, and why you do not call me Apostle Tab, although that might be nice, you know. I think that would require a pay raise, um, but um, you do hear or you do see different churches using that term, right? A lot of times it's like a charismatic church, right? Apostle Billy, right? Uh, come here, apostle, whoever, and such. We use the word, we reserve that word for the eyewitnesses and those sent directly by Jesus. Now, can we call ourselves apostles? Well, you, kind, you could, in a sense. You can say we are all witnesses to Jesus. We're not eyewitnesses. We haven't seen him. And Jesus Has Jesus personally sent you? Yeah, absolutely. We are all sent ones of Christ. In his baptism, he gave you a personal sending. That is yours. He's claimed you as his own. But we kind of reserve the word apostle or apostolic kind of to set apart the authority of the eyewitnesses, right? And they're the ones whose gospels, right, we, we set as the word of God. So while the term apostle could, in a general sense, be uh, applied to us. I stay away from it uh, and really only reserving the word apostle for those who are eyewitnesses, the, the authors of Scripture for us, uh, the sent ones of Christ. So now I preach, we all preach and teach the apostolic word. The church is built on the apostolic witness the witnesses of Christ. We are told in, in, in Revelation, the wall of Jerusalem is built on the confession of the apostles. The new Jerusalem, the temple, on the, uh, is built on top of the confession of the apostles. That's why, like in older churches, did anybody watch the, that King's coronation thing? I heard, I knew Nancy did. I, that, that was, you. <laughs> what is my favorite saying? I haven't cared what's happened in England since 1776. <laughs> How was it, Nancy? Well, it was a, you know, the hostess was from Britain, and so she also had a, a party a couple years ago for the king. Okay. You know, and like, we got our picture taken with a life-size picture. Oh, how fun. <laughs> That's great. And we all had to buy these fasc fascinators. fascinators. See, I know the word, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you could have worn it for the Kentucky Derby. Didn't that happen this weekend too, or something like that? It was yesterday. Yeah, yeah. See where you're. I like your 
see where your loyalties lie. Yeah. It's either Kentucky or England. Uh, yeah, and it was quite ornate, wasn't it? Quite liturgical, and there was the utmost respect paid for it, and uh, it's quite something, you know. Uh, the royalty and, and the liturgy, right, of what they did uh, was orderly. Um, it was sacred. I didn't see it, but I, I've heard and I've seen things like this before. Uh, there was no apologies, was there? Oh, we're, we're sorry that it's so formal. Yeah. But this is the first time um, leaders of other faiths mm. were invited there. Oh, nice. Oh, ooh. Because he that's too bad. To the yeah, 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 that's too bad. I said that's too bad. It wasn't a joke, really. Um, but yeah, that, that uh, they are, they're putting all faiths on the same, same level, right? Um, but my point in being that, you know, for this, they still view this kingly institution as an institution from God, and it's sacred. There was no apologies for it, you know. Uh, they, they want by their actions to teach something, uh, the sacredness of what is, what is happening. And that's what we do, too, by using this term apostle and the apostle's teaching. In, like, England and Europe and various foreign nations where Christianity has deep roots, this is why they bury people in the floor of the church. Did you know that? Have you heard this? That they'll, if you're a, a very influential person, if you're a pastor of a church, a, a high-ranking individual in service to the church and you die, they bury you right under the church, in the catacombs, right, what we might call catacombs, of the church. Or they'll bury you under the altar because in the book of Revelation it says the church is built on top of the apostolic witness of the proclamation, the apostolic word right, is what the church is built upon. So, yeah, they literally bury those who proclaimed that apostolic message. They literally bury them under the church, right? Y'all remember, I, I thought I told this joke before, but that doesn't stop me from telling it again. When Dick Stark was trustee, right, and, and he was doing a bunch of stuff, imagine that. And uh, I told him one day, I said, Dick, I hope you know where your burial plot is. And he said, yeah. I can't wait to get there. No, I'm kidding. Uh, and I said, because he was part of the, you know, the, this new renovations. I told him, we're going to bury you under the altar <laughs> of these new renovations in the church. He got a kick out of that. Um, but this is why. is because they were faithful proclaimers of the apostolic message. They were not apostolic. In a sense, we all are. But anyway, uh, just want to get that out because you hear that term used and misused a lot uh, in our day and age, especially in the Bible Belt. Okay, the apostolic message and the understanding of Jesus includes his divinity. Historically, bottom paragraph of page 58, historically, Christians have understood the title Son of God to mean that Jesus is God himself. Therefore, as the Nicene Creed asserted, referring to Jesus as the Son of God is the same as calling him true God. The Athanasian Creed written approximately a century later, boldly claimed concerning this understanding of Jesus. Whosoever wants to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and inviolate will doubtless perish eternal. Thus, 
The identity of Jesus was of utmost importance to the ancient Christians and should remain for us today. What does Catholic mean? Universal, all-encompassing, the whole church. Catholic is a Greek word that means universal, and especially when you see it with a little c. So when in the creed, when we confess the Catholic church, it should be a lowercase c, right? And that's why we keep saying that, because we say, I believe in the holy Catholic church, the universal church. We still believe that. We don't let the church in Rome co-opt the term Catholic. That's not their term. But when you use a capital C, you're saying the church in Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. Also, too, this comes up every once in a while, when people are joining the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and we're going through the, the rites of the profession of faith, and I say that you believe and profess the teachings of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and they say, Pastor, what do they say? I thought this was Missouri Synod, dang it, right? You got to say it, Missouri. There's, there's an A at the end. Um, because during adult instruction, we talk about the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. We hear that term, ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and we know that they as a church body now are no longer Christian. Um, so when we hear evangelical, what does evangelical mean? We know what Catholic is, yes. Close. <laughs> close uh, evangelical just means gospel it means good news evangel uh, the, uh, the good news bringers of, of good news you can hear angel in it right evangel evangel evangelical uh, evangel means message good good message um, good news so evangelical Lutheran church just, and this was a term that the Lutheran Church was given as a term of derision by the Roman Catholic Church. They were called, just like people a lot of times do today in politics, oh, those are the evangelicals. Evangelical was originally a term of derision used for the, the Lutherans during the Reformation, and the Lutherans said, fine, we'll take it. So in, in the historical documents around the time of the Reformation, when you see the word evangelical, it means though, it means, I mean, you could be known by worse terms, right? An evangelical, a good news person, person who has, believes the good news. And so Christians, you know, they, they wear it with pride. So when I say member of the evangelical Lutheran church, it's not evangelical Lutheran church of America. Right? That second half of it, Church of America, is really what they've become. They really are just uh, kind of following the politics of the United States as a church body, as a, as a whole. So when you hear me say Evangelical Lutheran Church, when somebody comes in through uh, affirmation of faith or confession of faith, it's a lowercase e, Evangelical Lutheran Church. Okay, so also with Catholic. Next paragraph. Some in our day, however, have suggested that identifying Jesus as God is a grave error. Many argue that Jesus was just a human being and nothing more. A modern-day example of those who argue this is the influential book titled Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Its authors assert a grand conspiracy theory that the idea that Jesus is God was a theological innovation concocted at the Council of Nicaea in 325. 
This idea entered the mainstream when it was adapted into the popular work of the fiction The Da Vinci Code, written by Dan Brown. Brown's novel not only topped the bestseller charts, but was also made into a blockbuster Hollywood film. Others have rejected the idea that Jesus is only an ordinary human being while still maintaining that Jesus is not God himself. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses argue that Jesus is, in reality, the archangel Michael. The Christian belief that Jesus is God, they contend, was fabricated in the 4th century, again, at the Council of Nicaea. The Jehovah's Witnesses come to a decidedly different conclusion regarding the genuine identity of Jesus than the authors mentioned in the above paragraph. But all contend that the doctrine of the deity of Christ, i.e. that Jesus is God himself, was an innovation foisted upon the church. This, they believe, came from the bishops present at Nicaea and was not believed by ancient Christians or taught in the original documents of the New Testament. Many others have made similar claims. What did Christians, or what are some of the other, if you know offhand, what are some of the other religions that acknowledge Jesus but deny his divinity? Islam. Islam, good, yeah. Islam. Mormonism. Yeah. A lot of religions acknowledge Jesus, right? You could even say general, um, you know, American sort of uh, Baskin Robbins, right? 33 different flavors. American Christianity, right? Just sort of, you know, they acknowledge Jesus, but um, they'll put limits on his divinity, like he's stuck up in heaven and can't be present in the sacrament. Um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of uh, different religions will, um, you know, we're talking about non-Christian too. Um, a lot of non-Christian religions will acknowledge Jesus, but not his divinity. Um, okay. Good. Yeah, those are just a, a few mentioned there. Um, okay, well, let's keep... I was going to say something, but I forgot. Yeah. Um, yes, it, it was, um, but I think the... I don't know about the official recognition of the Apostles' Creed, uh, to be, you know, stamped down as much as we know for the Nicene Creed. And that's why they jump on the Nicene Creed, um, because it has an official stamp, an official acceptance of the church at a specific time. And the Apostles' Creed uh, was more of a, a general acceptance of the church as a whole, yes, even beforehand. And we would say that even, you know, the, the creeds in the Bible from St. Paul and these other ones were all valid and all confessed, and even St. Paul, you know, referencing hymns and such. Um, so I think that's why they really grab onto the Nicene Creed, you know, and really attack that. And also, too, because in the Nicene Creed, it makes it very specific. You know, I believe in one God, you know, in the Apostles' Creed, uh, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, right? I mean, okay. His only son, okay? You know, Adam was called a son of God, and he was just a man. So in the Nicene Creed, I think all of those reasons, in my understanding. Good question, though. Okay, very good. 
What did Christians living prior, prior to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD believe about Jesus? This matter is of utmost importance. The reality is that Christians have always believed that Jesus is God. While they used varied terminology to express this truth, the deity of Christ was by no means a theological novelty conjured up in the fourth century. Even a casual perusal of our earliest set of post-biblical Christian documents reveals that long before the Council of Nicaea, Christians believed that Jesus is God. While space does not permit a more comprehensive examination of these writings, a couple of examples from some of the earliest Christian writers should demonstrate that they believed in the deity of Christ. Ignatius, who died approximately A.D. 110, is said to have been a disciple of the Apostle John and was reported to have been ordained by the apostles themselves. References to the identity of Jesus as God bound in his writings. Abound in his writings. Ignatius refers to the Savior as Jesus Christ, our God. Our God, Jesus the Christ. And our God, Jesus Christ. Among other divine titles, such grandiose language would equate to blasphemy if Jesus were not truly God. When addressing the coming of Jesus, Ignatius refers to it as the time when God appeared in the likeness of man unto newness of everlasting life. When did God appear in such a way? When Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Ignatius notes that the blood of Jesus is not that of a mere mortal, but instead the blood of God. Similarly, when writing to the enlightened Christians in Smyrna, he notes, I give glory to Jesus Christ, the God who bestowed such wisdom upon you. Ignatius not only recognized Jesus as a source of true wisdom, but he identified Christ as God himself. So some of the, some of the distinctions, and he's going to get into another theological word here in a moment, but I also want to pause here, and, and since we're talking about Nicaea and, and the Nicene Creed too, um, to discuss another word that is unique to the Nicene Creed as we confess it. That as the church met in 325 in Nicaea, the precise reason for their meeting was to make a public proclamation of all the churches together of who Jesus is. Because there were questions as to Jesus' true divinity. Um, uh, there was a, a Christian pastor uh, who was leading people astray in teaching that Jesus was not true God. That in the Bible, when it says Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, right? It says, oh, firstborn of the dead, or firstborn of the living. Um, he, he must just be a man. And this, this Christian pastor, he, he started saying and thinking too, if Jesus is true God, he can't die. God can't die. If Jesus is true God, he can't die. So this, this pastor, he says, hmm, so how do I reconcile this? Well, Maybe Jesus is a God. So this was going around in the 300s, right? And um, I completely forgot his name, um, this pastor. What? Come on. Some of you feel Arius. Who knew Arius? Who knew that? Who knew Arius? Uh, excellent. Thank you all. Very good. Uh, Arius uh, was this pastor that was doing that. He even wrote hymns to the effect, and we have some of them, that he's trying to teach people that Jesus wasn't true God. So this idea that Jesus wasn't true God has been around for a long time, that Jesus was just a God, okay? Uh, and in the Nicene Creed, they came up with the word that we say together when we confess it, 
um, um, we, we have begotten of the Father, right? Being of one substance. When we say that word, that is the word the church used to say Jesus is the same God as the Father. Being of one substance with the Father. Yes, it doesn't make sense that God himself would die. Um, in Jesus, that's what he teaches us, and that's what we confess. So Arius was rebuked at 325 at the Council of Nicaea. That's what it's known for. And it's also allegedly, this is where Santa Claus made his, made his name known. Uh, it's, it's legendary, you know, it supposedly uh, where uh, St. Nicholas of Smyrna, right? I think that's what it was, um, was so upset. Y'all heard me say this, right? He was so upset. He was a bishop in the area there in Turkey. He was so upset that Arius was so stubborn. And he kept saying during this council, he kept saying, oh, Jesus is not the son of God. And he would start to sing. And old St. Nick was so frustrated with it. He stood up and decked Arius right in the mouth. Boom, punched him. You know what happened to Santa Claus? He got arrested for uh, uh, behavior not becoming of a bishop. So they arrested Santa Claus, which the legend is supposedly built on because he had a reputation for, you know, taking care of the village kids, some, you know, however the legend might go. And this is all, this is all legend. We don't know if it's true. Uh, we do know that Nicholas of Smyrna, we do have the record, as far as I know, that this actually took place. He was arrested and then bailed out. He was told he had to apologize and be nice. But then at the end of it, they all said, well, we all wish we would have done it. Because <laughs> Arius was a heretic, and he was not repenting, and he was leading people astray. So uh, there you go. Some of the details, yeah, whatever. Uh, it's a fun story. So um, that's why it was great. When we were watching one of these Christmas movies with... Um, the Christmas movie we're watching, Jackson, remember when Santa Claus, he gets in the Dodge Charger, and it's Kurt Russell. What was that called? Do you remember? Christmas Chronicles. And he gets arrested and goes to jail. I told my kids, I said, that's not the first time Santa's been arrested. <laughs> it's great. It's a historically accurate movie. Okay. Um, this being of one substance, we say Jesus is the same God as the Father. Different person, same God being of one substance. Okay, next on to another person, Polycarp, uh, page 60, near the bottom. Polycarp, who died approximately A.D. 155, was a bishop in the church of Smyr at Smyrna and was likewise a disciple of the Apostle John. In exhorting the Smyrnians, <laughs> bless you, the Smyrnians to live a godly life, Polycarp wrote, now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal high priest himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, build you up in faith and truth. Who shall believe on our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, and on his Father that raised him from the dead? Polycarp observes two things about the nature of Jesus. First, that Jesus has no beginning. Polycarp refers to him as the eternal high priest. If Jesus is not God, how could he be eternal? All beings except God have a beginning and are therefore not eternal, right? Including the devil, right? Remember, the devil is an angel. He's a created being. Polycarp, however, notes that Jesus is eternal. Why? Because, second, our eternal high priest, the Son of God, is our Lord and God. 
If the deity of Christ was a fabrication foisted upon Christians at the fourth century council, how could these men so clearly identify Jesus as God centuries before Nicaea? Why did Ignatius, Polycarp, and so many others immediately identify Jesus as God? The New Testament explicitly says that Jesus is the Son of God. What, however, does Son of God mean in reference to Jesus in the New Testament? Are we intended to understand Jesus as the Son of God in the same way that angels are sometimes referred to as sons of God, Job 38? Or perhaps is Jesus said to be the Son of God in the same way that believers are called sons of God in Galatians 3.26? The New Testament prevents us from placing Jesus into the same category as angels or human beings as fellow sons of God by repeatedly applying the term only begotten to Jesus. The Greek term is monogenes, which literally means being the only one of its kind in a specific relationship. In essence, the term refers to the exclusive and unique nature of Jesus. He alone is the only begotten Son of God because He alone possesses the same nature as His Father, the very nature of God. Do you all know that you've said this monogenes word? Hopefully. Where do you think, uh, what do you think I'm talking about? If you know John 3.16, God's only son. So this is one place where we talk about the monogenes, which literally means the being of only one kind in its relationship. That John 3.16 specifically is saying, God loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's why we, we use this word only in there, um, because of its what it means and teaching that Jesus is the son of God. So when you say God gave his only son, we aren't just saying that that's the only son of God. We are. It's not specifically a term dedicated to just saying there's only one son of God. It is that. But even greater, it says this son is also the very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father. So in John 3, 16, it's a very theologically deep verse. It is what we call the gospel in a nutshell. It is. You see it in stadiums everywhere. People are not just proclaiming that Jesus is the only way. He is. They're right. But they're also saying Jesus is true God, the only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. In ancient Hebrew culture, to say that a person is the son of something is to say that that person has the nature of that thing. In the New Testament, for example, James and John are referred to as the sons of thunder. It's a great name for a softball team, isn't it? Because of their thunderous natures or dispositions. When Jesus claimed to be the unique son of God in the way he did, he was claiming to possess the same divine nature as his father. The Jews in Jesus' day clearly understood this. In John 5, for example, Jesus heals a man who had been suffering with paralysis. The man, following Jesus' instructions, takes up the bed on which he had been lying in order to walk home. The Jews see the man carrying his bed and are angered because they perceive him to be working on the Sabbath. The Jews then confront Jesus to ask why he told the man to carry his bed on the Sabbath. Jesus responds, My father is working until now, and I am working. This immediately enrages them. 
they seek to kill Jesus. Why? The text tells us. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, John 5.18. How is Jesus making himself equal with God? By calling God his father, and thereby claiming to possess the same divine nature as his father. The Jews understood this. So did the apostles, which is why we so often read of them referring explicitly to Jesus as God. For example, in opening, in opening his gospel, the apostle John writes, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's little doubt that this only Son from the Father is Jesus. Yet this same Jesus is said to be the person of the Word who became flesh. The very same person is with God, the Father, and also is himself God, that is. He possesses the same divine nature as his Father. Thus, John identifies Jesus as God. Jesus does the same concerning himself. In John 8, he's contending with the religious leaders of his day concerning his identity. The Jews explicitly asked Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? His final res response is recorded for us. Truly, truly, which is really, in, in the text, it's amen, amen. Amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. His opponents again became irate and seek to kill him. Why? They believe Jesus was committing blasphemy. In Exodus 3, when Moses is being commissioned by Almighty God to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, Moses asks God to tell him his name. The response given by God is, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When Jesus claimed the title, the divine title, I am, the Jews rightly understood him as claiming to be God. This is why they attempted to stone him for blasphemy. All the apostles and their disciples understood Jesus' claims. That's why Thomas confessed Jesus to be my Lord and my God in John 20, after his resurrection from the dead. That's why Titus calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. That's why Peter refers to him as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 1. That's why Paul affirms Jesus as Christ, who is God over all, blessed be forever, Romans 9.5. It's why the apostles worshipped him, Matthew 14, and it's what the apostles meant when they referred to Jesus as Lord, Philemon 2. In their minds and in their writings, there is no ambiguity. Jesus is God. Why does all this matter? Is it all just theological hair splitting? In a word, no. The apostle Paul once warned, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Presenting Jesus as anything other than God quite simply presents a different Jesus, and therefore a different gospel. Only the real Jesus, God himself in human flesh, can give us the real gospel, and only the real gospel has the power to save. A false Jesus can only give us a false gospel, and a false gospel has no power to save. So, um, the divinity of Christ, of course, is written all throughout the scriptures. <clears throat> a couple of in interesting observations, too, is that whenever somebody falls at the feet of Jesus and worships him, Jesus doesn't tell them, get up. Jesus doesn't tell them, you're you know, don't worship me. But the angels do. That's right. When John, do you remember what, what circumstance are you talking about? You don't have to give 
chapter and book, although if you want to, we'll all be impressed. <laughs> it's in the book of Revelation when the angel appears, right, to John, and John bows down to him. The angel is like, you better get up. <laughs> Do not worship me. You get up and you worship God alone. In the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord does appear, one way that you can tell that it is the pre-incarnate Christ, we say, is, and this is, this is why, like, Jehovah's Witness or some of these religions think that uh, the angel uh, Michael or Jesus as the archangel Michael is because this discussion of Jesus as the angel of God or the messenger of God, the angel as an evangelical, right, like we just talked about earlier, um, is is this teaching that Jesus appears in the Old Testament as an, as an angel, as, as, three, as a person. The Trinity appears to Abram as three people, right, at his tent. Uh, and many times when this angel appears in the Old Testament, the people worship him. They call him God. And the Malach uh, Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, doesn't correct them. He receives it. He says, yes, this is right. So that's how you can tell if the angel is, is a good angel or not, if the angel is divine, right? The devil, the devil will more than, more than gladly let you bow down to worship him. In fact, isn't that what he tried to get Jesus to do? Mm-hmm. Bow down and worship me. So um, um, this, this idea of Jesus' divinity is also seen in how people approach Jesus when they would bow down you know, the woman cleaning Jesus' feet with her hair, all these things, you know, um, Jesus received the worship. He would receive it, but then sometimes he would tell them. He would say, you know, and he would say, don't, don't tell anybody. Just, you know, let's keep this quiet. The messianic secret, they call it. Didn't work very well. <laughs> People still went out and told. Any other uh, ideas or, or thoughts on the divinity of Jesus that, that strikes you? I want to give you all a little, a little bit of time because uh, I've got one more thing I want to talk about in regards to the divinity of Jesus. Yeah. 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 Pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There and you know even in his divinity and this really takes an act of God too that Jesus we call this you know kind of his state of humiliation in this circumstance here where we can see and believe what Jesus says at face value when he says, who touched me? That sometimes Jesus says, I don't know certain things, guys. There are certain things that Jesus hid from himself, right? In his, in, in his divinity, he sort, of, he sort of hides his divinity. There's some things that Jesus... What else did Jesus say he did not know? The woman who touched him. Any other circumstances you can remember? When, yeah, yeah, the last day. And Jesus said, only the Father knows. Right? This was when Jesus was in his state of humiliation. Could Jesus physically be in multiple places before the ascension? No, Jesus was in one spot. He was a local, he was a human. But now that Jesus has ascended into heaven... Can he physically be present in many different places? Sure bet he can, right? Any, yeah, there I am. Yeah. Any other, any other um, questions and thoughts about divinity of Jesus? Not a question. I was surprised. This 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's, I mean, you could fill a whole book on this. Yeah, 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 it's great stuff. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I and the Father are one. Any other thoughts or questions? On, was that it? Yeah, yeah, that's another good passage. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Which particular verse do you recall or you just remember it in general? John 14, 1 to, 1 to 11. <laughs> yeah, you know, as the author said, you could fill a book, you know, with, with these things. It's great. Um, in relation to this, you, you just interrupt me when, when, when you're ready, Dave. Uh, in relation to this, too, you know, and, and I, I preach about this today, you know, we have to talk about what happened at the outlet malls yesterday just because of its close proximity to us. Did you find it? So it was John uh, 14, um, where, starting with verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I, and of course, Philip asked him about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very good. Um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty bold thing for a Christian to receive and believe Jesus' words in the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus, we are told in the Scriptures, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are confessing His death until He comes. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we are saying, Jesus is risen, and I am receiving his risen physical body and blood. Jesus has conquered death. This is why the Christian church, in the face of death and in the face of such tragedy, comes together around the body and blood of Jesus. Because we are making a public proclamation to everybody. I mean, think about what you're doing when you say amen, when you receive the body and blood of Jesus. You are saying, despite what the news is reporting, despite this tragedy, despite everything that's happening around us, even my own body deteriorating, Jesus is raised. We are proclaiming this is the most... I don't, I don't want to use the word most, but yeah, maybe I should. This is the loudest thing that we can do as God's people in the face of mass shootings, death, accidents, plague, and pestilence. Whatever it is, the church gathering around and saying, Jesus is raised he is the Son of God, He is divine, and His divinity is still with us today. This is a finger in the eye of the devil. <laughs> this is the loudest proclamation that we can possibly say against all the news of death and destruction, is we say what the church has been saying, even when the church is intentionally persecuted and Christians put to death, the church still gets together and says, this is the body and blood of Jesus. He is raised, he has defeated all things, and he is giving us the assurance of that victory right here and right now. Because I'm no better than any of those people who were murdered yesterday. I am no better than them. I am the same sinner 
right? As I consider myself a sinner like, you know, I don't even want to say like everybody else. What did the tax collector say when he was in the house of God? Forgive me the sinner, right? And what did the Pharisee say? God, thank you, I'm, I'm not like the other people, right? The Pharisee was considered worried about everybody else. Jesus said the tax collector went home justified because he, 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 knew, he knew what he needed. He needed the forgiveness of sins. And this fights our, this, you know, all the anxiety and, and the toughness, that cloud, if you will, that we're feeling right now, that cloud that when somebody dies, right, even when the death is expected or when death is looming, when something bad is going on and your soul is just in turmoil, the answer is to come receive the risen body and blood of Christ because that is his proclamation that death does not win. And that's why it's important we keep proclaiming this as the true body and blood of Christ because any compromise on that is a compromise on his divinity. It is doubting him. It is saying that his divinity is limited and he can't be present with us. So this is what we are called to do. So you want to know, I mean, I know at a time like this, there's so many things we can do to show the love of Christ. But first and foremost, we want to confess the divinity of Christ by receiving the Lord's Supper and saying amen to his words. Because this is a stumbling block, right? This is a, this is a, a foolishness to everybody around us. They say, oh, what are you going to do about this tragedy? And we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive, I'm going to believe Jesus and I'm going to receive his body and blood. He is going to work in me so that, what did the end of our reading, of our gospel reading say today? We will do, we will do even greater things. And yeah, you know, there are all kinds of things we wish we could do. But first and foremost, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes by gathering around together and proclaiming to the whole world, Jesus is risen. These are his words. This, this tragedy, yeah, it's bad, but Jesus is raised. The Christians, if they were Christians who died in this, like I say in my sermon today, they're, they're good. You know, they are taken care of. They are protected. We mourn as those who have hope. If they were our brothers and sisters, God has answered their prayers. He's delivered them from this veil of tears as he has seen fit. So we can, <laughs> on a morning where, you know, we were driving by the hospital this morning and there were already news cameras in the medical city, McKinney. Already news, right? It bleeds, it leads. Um, but what do we as God's people do? We come proclaim the divinity of our Lord. We say, yeah, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be tragedies. There will be all of these things, and not to belittle it. We pray for the families. We pray for all the people who are frightened and scared now. But we also do not shy away from proclaiming the divinity of Christ because that's what's going to be a public witness to all of those around us. And it's, it's, it's too sad that we're at a time now where uh, the word of God is trying to be silenced. Um, but let that not be among us.
So this is, this is why the church, this is why the church, when there's a death, we have a funeral, right? We come, we gather, we hear that our Lord has defeated death. Time of tragedy, we gather together, we confess the divinity of the man, Jesus Christ, and that he's raised. And he is still among us. He is still with us. He is with us in this wonderful and blessed way. All right, let's uh, close with prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you have protected us this night, that you have brought us to your house, that we may proclaim your resurrection, that we may receive and shout amen that your son indeed is risen. Be with us today, O Lord, as we wrestle with uh, evil, uh, even in our own midst. We pray you'd be with all of those who are fearful, uh, that they would seek you, that they would come to the knowledge of your dear son, Jesus Christ. If we are to be the tool to do just that, O Lord, may we be so honored. Grant us uh, courage, grant us strength and patience, uh, that we too may not fall victim to fear or uh, the shouts of the devil, uh, but that we would indeed continue to proclaim your son as true God, uh, raised from the dead for our benefit. Help us this week, protect us, uh, be with our community, um, and, and grant us perseverance. Uh, and Lord, please put a stop to evil, um, put an end to the chaos. Uh, but indeed, we know not, not one hair falls from our head without your knowledge. Not one thing happens without, without your, your giving it. Uh, help us, O oh Lord, to remain steadfast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.